Welcome to the IC Disc Show. Interviews with business owners, industry leaders, and tax experts sharing how the IC Disc can benefit your bottom line profits. Check out the show notes at icdiscshow.com. This show is brought to you by the IC Disc Alliance. Discover how the premier IC Disc consulting firms support you at icdisc.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Hi, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of the IC Disc Show. I have a really fun guest today. Her name is Lucy Petrie, and she is really a accomplished tax professional. She is a CPA. She's also an attorney. She just recently received her LLM in taxation, and she has also been a professor for both accounting classes at the University of St. Thomas and law classes at the South Texas College of Law. Lucy also was born in Brazil and is trilingual and has a really interesting eclectic practice of clients from all over the world. In this episode, we talk about uh, a really significant upcoming tax law change that's going to have significant reporting requirements to every business owner who has a legal entity, as well as the shareholders in said companies. And then uh, Lucy also got into some other parts of the tax code that are really helpful for individuals to be aware of but there are things that the average person may not know of. So I hope you enjoy the episode and have a great day. Hi, Lucy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Well, thank you for making time to be on here. I have been looking forward uh, to this. So let's get going. So are you a native Houstonian? No, I've been here 20 somewhat years, but I'm originally from Brazil. So my first language is Portuguese. And yeah, I also live in Hong Kong, Paris, and Santiago, Chile. So my accent is all over the place. Okay. So (laughs) did you pick up any languages in those other countries besides English and Portuguese? Yeah, I used to speak French pretty well. But when I was in Hong Kong, I tried to like learn a symbol. Like yeah. exit and I, I nothing. I, I could not even get that. That's just like, too difficult. <laughs> sure. And then what about Spanish? Did you pick up any Spanish? Yes. Yeah. So Spanish is my third language now. And, you know, living in Houston and I learned Spanish watching the novellas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, being, yeah. A, being a native Portuguese speaker, do you think that helped you pick up the oh, Spanish? Yes. Absolutely. They're pretty similar. So, okay. Was, uh, yeah. yeah, both romance similar. languages. Yes, yes. So what brought you to, to the United States? School. I, I went to undergraduate in Los Angeles at UCLA. And then I did uh, my graduate work here in Houston and my law school in Houston. And I just got my uh, LLM from uh, Georgetown in D.C., um, oh, that's, yeah. that, that is awesome. So yeah. you uh, are a CPA and an attorney, mm-hmm. and now you have your LLM as well. That's is right. that right? Yep. In tax. Okay. So 
let's talk a bit about your background. So do you serve clients more as an attorney or as a CPA? You know, in the, the, the tax work that I do, it's, it's really hard to tell where one ends and another one begins. Okay. We really do go hand in hand. We do prepare tax returns we, for both individuals and businesses. And we do represent clients in tax court as well. Okay. And so, yeah, we, we use both, both designations, both skills, and they go together. Okay. So like if a client gives you a power of attorney, do you present yourself to the service as an attorney, a CPA or both? We, we do it as an attorney. Yes. Yeah. I would yeah. imagine that would make more mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, just so, so let's talk about the type of client that you are best positioned to serve. Like what are the characteristics of the companies who you find that you can be particularly helpful for? Yeah. So we do different things. One thing, one uh, service that I really enjoy is uh, entity formation. I love helping clients start their businesses and then uh, we stay on uh, and help them with their taxes and advise them as the business grows. I really enjoy that type of work. Okay. Another another area of the, the client that we serve, and I really enjoy this, is very rewarding, are those clients who have fallen behind on their taxes. They haven't filed their taxes in many years. They are afraid. They're scared to file. And everything just snowballed, and now they have a huge tax liability. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, so we work with the with clients to get them out of that that situation, and yeah, and that is really really rewarding to to support the clients with that kind of work. Sure, and yeah. and you mentioned that you do both corporate and individual compliance. Is that correct? That is correct. We work with corporations, partnerships. And, uh, and individuals, yeah. Okay. And is there, so you'd mentioned the entity formation and, you know, clients being behind. Those, I would imagine, tend to be more one-off projects. As far as the types of clients that you're well-positioned to serve on a ongoing basis, would you say it's corporate individuals, both? Is there a certain size of business you find your best, you know, best positioned for? Yeah, so it is both individual and, 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 and corporate. Sometimes it will come to us as an individual wanting to start a business and we help them decide whether they should be a partnership, a sole proprietorship, a corporation. And, and then we also work on their individual taxes going forward, not just the new entity. There is no size or industry. We have a lot of uh, clients who are attorneys and law firms. And it just so happened, and we also work uh, with a lot of churches for some reason. Okay. Uh, we, we enjoy both industries. And the larger firms, the larger corporations, they tend to go to the big four, but there's no size limit for entities that we work with. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any clients who speak Portuguese? We do. We have several clients from Brazil and Portugal. As a matter of fact, we have clients all over the world. We have clients in Australia, Indonesia, quite a few in Europe and uh, South America. 
And okay. I think we have one in South Africa. So I think we got all the continents covered except for uh, Antarctica. <laughs> okay. Now, so why is it that you would have, uh, that seems a little bit surprising for a boutique tax practice that you would have so many foreign clients. What are the the characteristics of those scenarios that you would be involved yeah, so uh, being from Brazil and speaking Portuguese, I've been familiar with the taxation structure in Brazil. That, that is really uh, attractive to the Brazilian clients, especially the ones looking to establish a business here in the United States. Sure, sure. Yeah, so they, they really enjoy that. Um, also, we, for the other foreign clients, we are familiar with the international filing requirements and disclosures that these clients have to make. And we are able to provide just personal personalized service to them. They they don't get lost in the shuffle like they may have may do in a bigger firm. So we we can really work with the client on a one on one basis and provide the I don't know quality of service. So like yeah. for your so thank you for that. So like for your European clients, would these be like American expats that are over there for work mostly, or are they more? foreigners who have U.S. businesses here? Yeah, right now we are helping a Spanish slash UK company start a business here in the U.S. It's a, it's a technology company. So that's one example. Another example is an individual from the, I think from France, and he lived and worked in the United States for many years. He still has assets here. He still ha he has social security here. And okay. even though he no longer lives here in the United States, he still has filing requirements. So we'd support him with those. Okay. So let's talk yeah. a bit about some of those foreign filing requirements. What are kind of the guidelines for somebody who no longer lives in the U.S.? Is it, does it really come down to if they have U.S. income they have to file or if they're a U.S. resident or citizen they have to file? Help us understand kind of the dynamics that, require filing a U.S. tax return, even if you're not in the U.S.? Yeah, that is a great uh, question. Okay, so if you are a foreign individual and you have income in the United States, like the client I just mentioned, even though you are not a U.S. taxpayer, U.S. person, you do have to file uh, and report your taxes here in the United States. But okay. one thing that might surprise a lot of people is that the United States... It's one of the few countries in the world that taxes its, its citizens and residents in their worldwide income. So let me give you an example. Okay. Let's say you go on vacation and you go to uh, the Caribbean or I don't know, somewhere with a casino overseas. Yeah. And you bet it all on black and you get lucky and you win, I don't know, let's say $100,000. Yeah, and you decide to spend all that money on your vacation while you're there. And uh, sounds good because <laughs> since you made it at a casino outside the U.S., I'm guessing you don't have to pay tax on that, do you? Well, no. So let's say you spend all that money, you come back home, you still have to declare it and pay taxes. Oh no, thousand dollars that you, yes. Oh no. Uh, so you do have to pay taxes on your worldwide income. And there are only three other countries that, that uh, have these requirements. They're Eritrea, Hungary, and Myanmar. Uh, nobody else does this. Oh, but wow. yes, as, and it's not just for the citizens. They've also, if you are a green card holder 
a U.S. resident taxpayer. You, even if you're here as an undocumented uh, immigrant, you're still required to pay, to file and pay taxes on your uh, worldwide income. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, that this surprises a lot of people. Yeah. That, that, well, thank you for that info. While we're talking about somewhat, you know, not typical items, I sometimes get confused on how the whole gift tax thing works. Can you talk a, a bit about that? What are the, you know, kind of at, the, at a high level, what are the general rules on gift taxes? Yeah, so everybody can give out uh, $16,000 a year, and that's per person. So you and your wife can each give $16,000 to each of your children or to your neighbor or to anybody you'd like to. But anything above that, you need to file a gift tax return and disclose the gift to, to, to the IRS. And the giver, the gift giver is the one required to file that? Yes, and they are also the, if there's a tax involved, they are also the ones required to pay the taxes. Okay. Now, right now, Dave is really good. Uh, you you have the, the universal exemption. You can give away. I think is up to twelve million dollars right now, and that comes out of your estate that you don't pay taxes on. That okay. number may change. I I don't know, but let me let me just give you an example that that could. Um, cause you to have to file a gift tax return, not necessarily pay, but file. Let's say you gave your daughter a nice car for college graduation. Okay. Or parents help their uh, children put a down payment on a house. Okay. Or here's another one. What about, I don't know, we hear the celebrities uh, engagement rings being really expensive. What about engagement ring? That's, is that a gift? Hmm. So, yeah, according to the Internal Revenue Code, Section 2523, uh, not to be uh, too dirty, but yes, you are required to disclose the gift. Is that only if it's valued at over 16000 Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. It's over $16,000. So the lesson there for the men out there is you should never, no matter what, <laughs> spend more than $16,000. And so... You can blame that on Lucy, you know. There we you, go. If your that's, fiance was expecting a more expensive ring. Right. That's a that's a pretty good point. Now, in reality, the IRS, I, I have never seen the IRS enforce this. Uh, sure. Yeah. But it yes. <laughs> and then so for like a down payment on a house, you know, in theory, the couple could provide up to thirty two thousand. And if that person was married you know, the recipient was married, in theory, they could give the son or daughter-in-law another 32000 right? That's right. So they could that potentially gift up to 64000 to the couple. Exactly. And that number increases every year. So. Okay. Because of like inflation yeah. adjustment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, this is helpful. Let's see. And then kind of back to the, the casino stuff. I understand that when you're in the, even if you're in the U.S., if for whatever reason, whether you're at a casino or somewhere else, if you, for whatever reason, end up with a whole bunch of cash in your pocket and you decide to go deposit it in your bank account, I understand if it's a certain dollar amount or more, you've, you know, the bank's going to have questions for you because the IRS will have questions. Is that right? Yes. So if you were thinking of living off the grid, 
yeah. and not participating in the, you know, I don't know, banking system or just operating cash. Yeah, any transaction in excess of ten thousand dollars requires a special disclosure, and it's a reporting made to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is a part okay. of the Treasury. And just the name itself, Dave, scares me. Right. right. Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. I exactly. do not want to mess with them. Right. right. Uh, but yeah, so you, you're supposed to uh, disclose it and, and they, they would file a report and let the government know that you made that payment. So if you're trying to live off the grid, you will not be able to buy any real estate or um, right. vehicles or anything in excess of $10,000 without the government knowing. Now, so, what if on then, the other hand, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's uh, okay. Me, Go ahead. So on the other hand, what if you had, say, two business transactions where you were paid uh, one, you were paid, say, $6,000, and the other, you were paid $5,000, and you decided to go make your bank deposit of $11,000 for convenience, just lump those two together. How does that work? Will the $10,000 deposit trigger that? Re- yes, because it's ten thousand dollars in cash. The bank will know that it came from two different clients. I've got you. They are, yeah, they're not going to ask you with right where the money came from or be able to differentiate it. Yeah. So, for from pragmatic perspective, if the person collected those, if they timed the collection to collect those on different days and deposit them on the day of collection, then that would put them below that ten thousand dollar threshold. Correct. Yes. But if you make deposits that are close to the ten thousand dollars, they that will also they will also flag it because yeah, like if yeah. you made the five thousand dollar deposit and then you came back ten minutes later and made the six thousand dollar deposit, right. Whereas right. if you had two transactions and they were the only two cash transactions and they were six months apart, that's probably not a problem. I take it right. Or if you're depositing, I don't know, $9,500. Right. Yeah. Every day you're depositing (laughs) $9,999. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's good practical advice to have. And and then kind of back to the gift taxes on the flip side, because on the one side, it's called a gift, but on the other side, I guess the recipient, it's either the receipt of a gift or like the receipt of an inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they go hand in hand. So if you, uh, it's something that most people may not know. If you have a wealthy foreign uncle, cousin, mm-hmm. <laughs> family member overseas, and they die and you receive an inheritance uh, in excess of $100,000, you are also just like the $10,000 or just like the worldwide income, you're also required to report that to the government. And okay. you won't pay any taxes on it. And we're just talking about the foreign inheritance. Here you, in the United States, you can have up to $12,000 of uh, estate, and that goes to estate slash gift and not um, pay taxes on. And you won't pay taxes on the, the, the foreign inheritance. Likely, I have to throw in my uh, typical lawyer uh, disclaimer there, but uh, uh, you have to report it and disclose it to the government. And because if you don't, the penalties are really crazy. They are thirty-five percent of the amount that you received, and I think there's a continuing penalty of five percent per month for each month that you uh, the government has notified you and you haven't made the the payment for a maximum of 65%. 
oh, wow. in uh, penalties plus interest. So that $100,000 could be just about gone. Oh, um, wow. Just, That's good yeah. to know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you have any rich, wealthy relatives overseas, just you know, keep that in mind. <laughs> sure. No, that, that sounds good. Let's see. What are some... Let me think of some other areas that I've had some confusion myself about. Oh, yeah. Like, let's say charitable contributions. You know, I know if like, if I take, you know, oh, you know, uh, a small box of clothes to Goodwill that's maybe worth $100, I think the reporting on that, you just kind of self-report it, right? Using some a reasonable method to determine the value. Is that right? Right. So it is supposed to be the value, not what you paid for the item, but what it would sell at a thrift store. Okay. The thrift store value. But if you make a donation in excess of $5,000, you need to get an, an appraisal. Oh, wow. And yeah, and this has to be a qualified appraiser and they have to sign the text, the appraisal form. And yeah, so let's say you're moving and you're giving away a whole lot of your entire house. Let's say you're moving overseas because of that inheritance you received. Okay. <laughs> and you're giving away your entire house to Goodwill Salvation Army and you want to deduct more than $5,000. You would need an appraisal for that in order to, uh, to be able to deduct the, the entire contents of your household furniture and uh, everything else. Yeah. Okay. So, so just be careful. Just so just make sure that your donations are below $5,000. Okay. And so let's just say that house example, let's just say you gave away uh, a bunch of different household furnishings, furniture, clothing, and let's just say it totaled $25,000. Would you be able to have a single appraisal done for the entirety or do you have to have a separate one done for each like $5,000 increment? Yeah, so the, the code says that it's similar items. So it could be just one big item or several similar items. So I I would say you would be able to do it in one lump sum. Okay. Yeah, say furniture, for example. Okay. Uh, art. Yeah, so those categories. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's but helpful. Like, yeah, Go it ahead. is. But also, if you think about it, let's say you're just right on the cusp of $5,000, it's probably not going to be cost effective for you to go out and get an appraisal. Sure. Um, right. The, the, the deduction, the tax deduction you would receive, I'm sure, would be less than what you have to pay an appraiser. Right. So in that case, you still can make the donation, but just don't claim it as a donation. Exactly. Exactly. And I guess it also works with if you decide to donate all your household furnishings, but you don't plan to report it, then mm-hmm. no need to get it appraised, right? Even if it was exactly. worth a million dollars. Yeah. Right. You can just give it away and just not, yeah, just not take a deduction for it. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is helpful. What about... And so most of these items, I think I've kind of heard about over time. I, I think they've most of these have been in the code for a while. Mm-hmm. Is there anything coming down the line that we need to be thinking about that's not in effect yet, but but will be at some point? Yes, there's a new, fairly new law on the books, and it's not in effect yet, but it's coming. And it's the Corporate Transparency Act. This law will require 
any entity that is registered with the state to file a report, again, with the Financial Crimes and Enforcement Network, to disclose the ownership of these entities, whether they're LOCs or corporations or partnerships, we will have to disclose the ownership to the federal government. You know, you know how like certain states like Delaware, you, you can't create an LLC or corporation and nobody will know who the right. owners are, right? And it's one of the um, reasons why people go to, to these states to create their entities because they can stay anonymous. So yeah, so that's going to go away. Sure, you, you remain anonymous to the public and to the state, even though the state will be able to request this information. But the federal government will know who owns these entities. And, and, and so is there any, so when is this supposed to go into effect? I believe it's under, the regulations are undergoing public comments right now. Okay. Uh, so I don't know when that will close and go into effect. I expect it will be uh, maybe next year or so. Now, so we'll I be guess hearing it, a whole lot more about this. Sh- yeah. Sure. Now, what's a little frustrating about that is I know already that if you have a, well, I say I'm pretty sure of this, but like if you have an S Corp or partnership or LLC, the ownership is indirectly disclosed through the K-1s, right? I mean, This is you, true, yeah. And so would the expectation be that there would just be like you know, some additional info on the corporate return to make sure that even, because I can't think how the rules work, but like a, but is the thinking that it would be a completely separate form to be filed with a separate entity or would that 1120, 1120 S1065 return just become uh, a little more uh, thorough? Yeah. Have you heard That's anything? A, yes, there, that is a great question. So uh, two things about that. Like one, sometimes in a partnership, not, not in an S-corp, in partnerships, the owners are other partnerships or other entities, right? So the mm-hmm. individual owner is not necessarily disclosed. It is, you just say that the owner is another partnership. The owner of that partnership is another uh, partnership, and it could be several layers. I see. Without having saying, an individual. Right, and you're saying that, you know, that quote, indirect ownership or ultimate ownership would likely have to be disclosed at the first a company level because I mean, right. in theory, the IRS could just trace all those returns and get to who the ultimate individual is, but it sounds like they don't want to have to be bothered to go to that degree of research and they just want you to disclose it right off yeah. the bat. I don't think they, they have the manpower and resources to do this, but this reporting will be done separately through the, the financial enforcement crime network. There'd be a minimum, is there talk of a minimum? size either you know value of an investment or the like revenue size of the company or 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 have there been has there been any talk about that yeah so that is, that is a great question larger companies there will be companies that are exempt larger companies publicly traded companies are not going to have this requirement but the LOCs, the single member LOCs will be subject to this requirement. And I was going to say, this is a separate report 
that it is made is it's managed by the treasury, but it's made with the financial uh, crimes enforcement network, which is the same place where you disclose your foreign bank accounts, the FBARs. Right. So it's going to work just like that those reports and it's going to be independent uh, from your tax return, corporate tax return. But no, it's going to be even the single member LLCs. I don't remember what, how many days, but I think you just have 15 days or a month to, to make this report. And if you don't, and here's what's, what is so scary about this um, law is the penalties, Dave. The penalties are crazy. It okay. is $500 a day that you are out of compliance. And there is no cap. As of right now, there's no limit. So oh, wow. let's say you just went to the Texas Secretary of State and you created XYZ LLC and you didn't know. And, you know, you're just creating this LLC just to start, I don't know, a little online business selling widgets. And uh, yeah, and you didn't know about this, this law. And all of a sudden you are fined. Uh, $500 a day. That is just crazy to me. And I hope they change that. But hey, sure. we, I, we don't know if illegal Zoom is going to help you. We don't know if uh, um, certainly just going to the Secretary of State and, and opening an LLC, you will definitely not know how to navigate these rules. Mm-hmm. And that's just another argument Dave, for using a, a professional uh, to sure. help you get your business started. Yeah, because it can get pretty complicated pretty quickly. Okay. Now, that's interesting. And I will hope that you'll let me know if this law gets passed, right? Well, it's already passed. It's, yeah, it's just a matter of when it... Oh, you said the like, law's already been passed. It's just yes. the, the implementation details haven't been finalized. That is correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I will like, definitely keep you posted. Okay. Yes, please. Uh, please do that. So talk to me about some of your instruction. I understand you've had a chance to teach to some of your alma maters. What what got you into to teaching and, and what have you taught and where have you taught? I just kind of fell into it, David. It's, it's not something that I, I sought out, but I just uh, retired from teaching at South Texas College of Law where as a student, I started a tax clinic. And when I graduated, we made the clinic into a class and I became the professor. Oh, wow. I think they, okay. they just didn't have anybody else to run the clinic. So they just <laughs> okay. hired me because I had graduated and moved on. So it kind of fell into it. But I really enjoyed managing that clinic and helping not just the students, but also the taxpayers and providing pro bono work to the community. That was very rewarding. And then uh, around the same time, I I got uh, my mentor invited or my school invited me to go back and teach taxation. My another professor was retiring and they needed somebody in the graduate program at the University of St. Thomas to teach business taxation and individual taxations. And this is going to be a, hand, a mouthful, but it's a master's of science in accountancy program training okay. students to become CPAs. Oh, yeah. okay. So well, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's, it sounds like it. Well, let's talk about 
I, I like stories. So let's maybe talk about, and obviously you'll we'll keep the clients anonymous, but like what comes to mind is like maybe one of the most interesting engagements you've ever worked on. There's one, and it's not necessarily uh, interesting. This was great run of the mill for us, but it, the, the, it was extremely rewarding. This this client came to us and he was really scared and he wanted to be sure that he was speaking with an attorney licensed in the state of Texas. And we assured him that everything that he told us would be confidential. Mm-hmm. And he came to us and he said that he had some problems and went through a divorce, some difficulties in life, and he stopped filing taxes. And he was really terrified that he was going to go to jail because he hadn't filed in so long. And um, we said, well, you know, let's just have a look. Let's have a look and see where you are, where the government is as far as your IRS account with your tax account with them. Dave, we performed an investigation analysis of his tax account. It turns out the government owed him money. Oh, wow. And Yes. And so we got him compliant. We got him some money back, not all of it, because you only have three years to ask for your money back from the government. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and he did not go to jail. <laughs> well, that's good. Was yes, this just b- yes. because he'd had wages that the employer mm-hmm. had withheld taxes? Was that exactly? Was that yeah. why? Exactly. So he had paid in to, uh, and he, the amount of money he paid in or had withheld from his paycheck was more than his actual tax liability. And how does that work? Like from a process perspective, do you reach out to the IRS and say, Hey, I've got this client. Like, I'm not going to tell you their name right now, but here's the situation. And, you know, like, what are your thoughts and kind of have like an informal settlement conversation before you reveal the name or is it a more structured process where step one is fill out some form and then kind of hope for the best? Well, the IRS will, it's a common misconception, Dave, that you will, if you call the IRS to ask for a status, we call, we'll get transcripts of your account, that you will call out attention to yourself. And that is, the, the IRS is not that organized. Okay. Um, okay. So you absolutely can call the general line, go online to IRS.gov and set up an account and get your transcripts just to see how much you owe, how, whether or not they have your tax returns or what has been paid in. But our process starts with an engagement letter, a contract, of course, and then we obtain a power of attorney. And this is a very specific power of attorney that allows us to speak with the government on your behalf. And we set out to do an investigation and see where you are, whether you are in collections or if you are being audited. And we first, we seek to understand the situation. And then we provide our clients with a solution. And you may not like the solution. Sometimes the solution is just you have to pay. But uh, we will work with you in setting up an uh, installment agreement or asking for forgiveness if you are eligible for what is called an offering compromise. Uh, So yeah, first step is to understand and give you a clear picture of where you are and then give you uh, a plan 
to get out of the position where you are. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. Well, as we are kind of wrapping things up, any other insights that you might want to share with, with a lay person to keep in mind when it comes to tax matters? I think they've using the cost of using a professional, a, a CPA, an attorney, it far outweighs the, the trouble and the cost of, of not using one. If, when things go wrong with the IRS, they are very difficult to get a hold of. It can get pretty bad pretty fast. So if I have one advice to all of my clients and, and friends and family members is to use a, use a professional to help you with your taxes and to handle any IRS matters. Okay. Yeah. And I also, yeah, I don't know this for sure, but I've always wondered if self-prepared tax returns might come under more scrutiny than ones that are uh, they do have a paid preparer. Do you have any sense? Because I, I realize the IRS intentionally doesn't publish the criteria that causes an audit, so it would be more anecdotal. But have, yeah. do you have any sense of whether self-preparing a return may increase your audit probability? I don't think it does. Okay. I don't think it does. But if you use a professional, you could potentially rely on the doctrine of a reasonable, oh, it just escaped me, reliance on, on a professional or business dealings where you reasonably For like decide. interest or penalties or both? It potentially a, a way to get out of those by telling the government, look, I trusted this, the advice of this professional and mm-hmm. I trusted them to, to help me with these matters. So that is one thing that can help you with. Second, um, CPAs, attorneys, enrolled agents, they are licensed by state government agencies and they have to abide by certain uh, codes of conduct. And if they deviate from those, there are consequences to them. So it's another reason to use somebody who is credentialed. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, this has been a really useful talk and I think you've really given a lot of valuable data for listeners. Wait, hopefully nobody fell asleep. <laughs> oh, I, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. So if, if somebody does want to reach out to you, I believe your LinkedIn profile is Lucy. Is it Petri or Petri? How do you pronounce Petri, it? Petri, yeah. Petri. Petri, yes. And it's Lucy Petri, L-U-C-Y-P-E-T-R-Y. And then if they, if they're, if they want to reach you any other way, what's the best way for them to reach you besides LinkedIn? Yeah, so they can call our office, 713-859-8000. Easy okay. to remember. Or if you just search my name, or Petri Law Firm website will come up, and it's petrilawfirm.com. Okay. Um, you'll be able to find it easily. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, Lucy, I really appreciate your time. This has really been a fun conversation, and I, I really appreciate you making time out of your day to talk to me. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Ah, My pleasure. Well, have a great day. Thanks. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's I C 
dash D-I-S-C show.com and we have additional information on the podcast archived episodes as well as a button to be a guest so if you'd like to be a guest go select that and fill out the information and we'd love to have you on the show so that's it we'll be back next time with another episode of the ic disc show